The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This month, it's Susan Divers. In this concluding episode four, we talk about Susan's work at LRN. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for our concluding episode of our four-part exploration of the Compliance Life with Susan Divers. Uh, in our last episode, Susan uh, had moved to the CCECO chair at AECOM. Well, now she's going to move to the place where I met her, which is LRN. So, first of all, uh, welcome back, Susan. Thanks, Tom. It's always good to talk with you. So, could you tell us how you moved uh, from AECOM to LRM, or was there an interim step in between? Uh, well, I, I tried to retire, um, and I flunked. Um, so I, I was at AECOM, and we were having a major change of management. Um, we had just done the URS uh, acquisition, and similar to SAIC, I said, hmm, um, this might be a good time to go. Uh, and it was. Um, but after six months home, and even though my late husband and I used to joke that I'm a 50s person at heart because I love to cook and I love to garden and I like to decorate the house um, and I have now have three dogs um, and two kids um, uh, and all. Um, after six months, and he was a very high-powered retired FBI agent, he said, I succeeded in retirement, but I don't think you are. Um, and he was right. So um, I looked around and... I was particularly happy to go to LRN. It, again, it, it found me. And um, that's because, um, to me, I was getting really interested by the time I left AECOM, and I was very active in the Bella community, which is the Business Ethics Leadership Alliance with Ethisphere, which I think very highly of, um, on what actually works um, in terms of ethics and compliance. And I saw a lot of... I would call residue from the early stages of ethics and compliance programs where um, the early ones in particular, I think, were set up in large part by prosecutors or former prosecutors. And so they're very punitive, very rules driven, very don't you dare do this. And um, my own experience had been that that wasn't the best way to go about things. Um, you have to have rules, but if you don't animate your program with values, um, you, you get a dead program, um, and you and I share that view. Um, so at any rate, um, LRN had this very active thought leadership practice, um, and it published a program effectiveness report every year uh, that was widely read, and it also had um, former chief ethics and compliance officers on board, and of course it had Dove, who uh, really, I think, maybe played the major role uh, in reorienting ethics and compliance programs and sort of governance systems 
away from command and control and towards a values-based, um, more democratic model, especially when he published his famous book, How, in, I think, 2006. And he also had um, uh, submitted testimony to the Sentencing Commission when um, the whole thing started with companies getting credit for having ethics and compliance programs. So that was clearly a good fit um, for me. And given that I was really interested in looking at what worked and what um, made ethics and compliance programs effective. Well, I failed retirement twice, so I don't plan to try again. Um, so I completely understand. <laughs> the, um, and that's really what I wanted to, to talk about is this journey you've had through LRN. The uh, program assessments and a program effectiveness that you have worked on and I've had the opportunity to work on a couple of times with you over the years provide just a ton of information, not simply what an effective program looks like, but a good way for companies to benchmark their own programs. Do you, in, in your role, do you have the opportunity to work with companies in a variety of uh, different compliance topics, or uh, is your role something else at LRN? I do both. I, I, do, I am the main author of our annual program effectiveness report, but I also do strategic program um, evaluations, and they're not checklists. Um, they are basically, um, I, I would say it's more like an MRI um, than an X-ray. It's looking at what are the dynamics that affect this program, and it may look good on paper, but is it actually um, changing behavior, and is it actually delivering the information and the help and the resources that employees need uh, to avoid misbehaving um, and to be compliant? So it's, it's I, I do do both. And the one informs the other, obviously. One of the words you've used uh, more than once throughout this podcast series is values. And you touched upon that in our last episode where you talked about the values at AECOM. And uh, I had suggested we were going to talk about that further. But that's one of the things that you have continually talked to us about uh, since I've known you is values. And I wondered if you could really maybe expand on that, really starting with Dov, but then how you have seen values really become as important as any other part of a compliance program uh, going forward. Oh, I'd, I'd love to talk about that, Tom, as you know. Um, well, it's a shift in focus. And uh, the best examples really, I think, arose during the pandemic, where I, I just learned only a couple of weeks ago that a major retailer that we've all heard of um, the executives, when the pandemic hit, decided to give up voluntarily um, large parts of their compensation to keep more employees employed. Um, well, no one can force you to do that. I mean, that's not something that you can put a rule in place. Um, that's a value in action. And another example that's cited in our 2021 program effectiveness report is Braskin USA, which maintains parts of the electric grid where their employees volunteered to self-isolate in plants for 30 days at a time uh, to keep the, the grid going. And again, you could never force people to do that, um, but they did it. Um, and then just a couple of months ago, we did a webinar with Auchan, which is a major French retailer, and they described how employees wanted to keep food stores open and you know could have chosen 
to isolate at home with their families, but um, were committed uh, to their stakeholders and their customers, and Oshun did everything they could to make that experience as safe as possible. And again, you can't force people to do those things. Um, that has to come from a sense of, of doing the right thing. What are the other themes that uh, you have talked about uh, in your work as a CECO, and I think I've heard you say a little bit in your work at LRN, is the why of compliance, the why of ethics. And, and I probably should have brought this up under AECOM, but um, I was particularly intrigued uh, by your description of the workforce <clears throat> as largely engineers or many engineers. In my experience, uh, they're very process-oriented, yet <clears throat> they wanted to know the why, but when you wedded that process orientation to understanding the why, it became a very powerful message. And uh, the why part of a compliance program, is that uh, a message you've been able to continue at LRN to help CCOs, compliance professionals, and others understand, hey, you have to explain the why? Absolutely. And I have a really good example that's very timely. Um, When you look at ESG, which is very trendy now, if you will, um, ethics and compliance are an integral part of that. Um, Because if you're operating abroad, yes, you have to be a good environmental citizen, but you also should engage in governance that is sustainable. I mean, if you're paying facilitation payments, you're basically distorting the local economy and making it harder for poor people um, to get the services they need. Um, And if you're building ethical institutions, and treating your workers in a fair and equitable way, you're building ethical muscle. And for engineers, you know, when you kind of connect the dots that way, um, and I come from a family of engineers, um, then it's easier to say, oh, okay, I get it. This isn't just another hoop I have to jump through. This is fundamental um, to how we impact the world. And um, I think it's good that people care about that much more and are much more conscious about it. Um, And I just recently worked with a major pulp and paper company that has an amazing record on sustainability. Um, And they have a very good ethics program, but they hadn't connected those two together. Um, And they're going to now and make it more powerful. Susan, I was wondering if uh, I might ask you to turn uh, your gaze down the road a little bit. I used to say 2025, but that's almost here now. So maybe down down the road to where do you see the compliance profession, the CECO, and uh, maybe even ESG evolving? As you you mentioned, and put a big smile on my face when you said about compliance programs written by prosecutors. Uh, I temper that a little bit. I used to say written by lawyers for lawyers, um, but you're yeah. absolutely right. Now that I think about it. The first decade of the, this century, it was literally written by all ex-prosecutors, and that explains a lot. We've obviously seen evolutions in compliance, in compliance programs, but where do you maybe see us going down the road as we uh, work towards the conclusion of our uh, series? That's a great question, too, Tom, and thanks for asking it. Um, and, and we do talk about that in our 2022 Program Effectiveness Report. Um, I see people doing their training on their mobile phones. I see them putting hotline complaints or helpline inquiries in on their mobile phones. I see them reading policies on their mobile phones. 
and I see it all interconnecting. I mean, this is, you know, obviously not tomorrow's vision, but down the road, although some companies like Dell, as we described in one of our uh, program effectiveness reports, are doing those things. Um, and the reason I see that is it needs to, the compliance space needs to shift to be very employee facing. Um, and as you said, it was lawyers writing things for other lawyers, and it was very gotcha. Um, you had to read a long, complicated policy and say, yeah, I understand every word. And then if you screwed up, um, you could be fired. Um, and so the focus, I think, particularly with the pandemic, has shifted to can employees actually understand policies? Does the training actually help them? Is it relevant to their roles? And for people who are in high-risk functions, um, as opposed to you know people who aren't, um, is it more focused on those risks? So I think that's the big trend that I can see lots of indicators emerging. Um, and I hope it is, because I think it's time um, that that became the dominant perspective. I was also intrigued by your remarks around tying uh, compliance, not to ESG uh, generally, but to sustainability and governance specifically, and that how powerful that can be when a company connects those dots. What do you see as the role for compliance in either a broader ESG framework or really in the S or the G part of ESG? Well, I think compliance needs to step up to the role there. Um, and I do see it, it, Clorox is a great example where um, a, where uh, the general counsel in particular has really led that. And um, um, I've also seen some of the pharma companies doing that as well. Uh, and I was active in the UN Global Compact Goal 16 working groups. And the companies there get it. Um, and they understand that ethics and compliance are part of your impact on society. Um, I mean, if you're an unethical company, um, you know, Wirecard comes to mind, or I mean, you could pull out even Boeing with the terrible history on the uh, 737 MAX. Um, if, you're if you're not living the talk as well as walking it, you can kill people. Um, so it's really important that the compliance team sees itself um, in that larger context of what is the impact on society? What's the impact on the on the local structures in terms of governance. Are we interacting with them in a way that strengthens good governance or are we interacting with them in a way that doesn't? And that story I told about the AECOM manager who turned down the corrupt, uh, the, the, the project that had some troubling corruption um, uh, red flags, that's an example of somebody who <clears throat> got it then before it even became sort of ESG in my view. Susan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this final episode. It's been a great series. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, getting to visit with you. And I uh, wanted to conclude by asking if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or LRN, what would be the best way for them to find out? Uh, well, Tom, if they go to my LinkedIn, um, I like uh, directing people there if I can, because that's where I've got a lot of the things that I've written. Um, but also, I'm easy to find at LRN as well. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. 
Uh, and I'm going to encourage everyone, if you've not looked recently at the LRN site, go, go look at it. The number of resources that are available is just stunning. There's some great information that will help you on literally any topic on compliance and ethics. Susan, this has been a great, uh, great time and a ton of fun for me. At <laughs> the same time. Absolutely. Anytime. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.